Amen. Let's, let's pray. God, we, uh, we love you, and we're so thankful for what you're doing in each one of our lives. And, and Lord, uh, as um, we uh, start the new year, um, God, we ask as we grow closer to you, we learn more about you, that you put the people around us, God, that we need to share our love to. And Jesus, uh, thank you for, uh, sin, for dying on the cross for us. In your precious holy name, amen. Well, amen. Amen. As you have, grab your seat if you have a Bible. We in Second Thessalonians we begin a new series today through the book of Second Thessalonians. I hope y'all had a uh, a great Christmas, a great New Year's. It's been kind of weird um, for me. It's been two Sundays. I've been out. We had the uh, the great sprinkler shower of 2022 uh, that happened on Christmas Eve. A sprinkler broke here and, and made a, just a terrible mess, and so. Uh, we, we met on Christmas Day over at East Campus, and uh, that was a, really was a, just an awesome experience for both our campuses to come together and to worship. And then, uh, of course, I was out last week. I'm grateful for my friend Jeremy um, preaching uh, Sunday, did a, did a great job. What a, what a fitting um, a text Sunday uh, for this past Sunday than to, uh, to love God and love people. If that, was, if that was our goal for the year, what an incredible goal that would be if we just really focused on loving God and loving people. So I'm grateful for him and uh, his willingness to, to fill in and excited to be uh, back with you. It's, um, it's a different day here at Eastwood. We begin our second, or this is our second service, our two services. I learned a lot in the first service. Number one is to preach shorter. So I'm going to do my, uh, hey, did I hear an amen back over there? I think I heard it. Um, I'm going to do my best uh, to do that. To, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, we're going to try to, we'll do our best. Anyways, if you have a Bible, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. This book here, um, uh, just a little bit of context as we dive into the book here. This book was written about AD 50 by Paul, a second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And um, this was uh, basically came on the hills. This, this letter came on the hills, or both of his letters to the, the church in Thessalonica came on the heels of um, Paul's missionary journey um, early on. If you look in the book of Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9, tells us the story of him going. What happened is so, so he and Silas were going, they were preaching, they were teaching, and they, and they were doing their missionary journey. And then, then all of a sudden, they kind of they got some resistance, and they ended up being pushed out and didn't have a whole lot of time to equip and to train the church. And so therefore, you get these two these two books that are coming, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, that are that are coming to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, at some point, you know, Paul then sends Timothy to check on the churches. Timothy had uh, then come back after he checked on, come back, and he had a report of some things that were going on. There were some um, some issues in the church that needed to be dealt with. This church was really, really young. We have to understand that this church was just been planted. This hasn't been. This isn't very far in their the church's life. There weren't a lot of Christians around at that moment. So uh, the men of faith, like Paul, would have to would need to come along and write letters and send letters to encourage and to challenge and to correct any teaching that was going on. So there were all kinds of things that were happening during this. Uh, during this time, and the reason for this particular letter here. And this particular letter, first, Second Thessalonians, seems to follow pretty closely on the heels of First uh, Thessalonians. He got word that there were some uh, misunderstandings and some issues, and they were also obviously dealing with persecution. This was early on in the church days, uh, early church, where when, um, the, when Jesus gives the command and the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded to you, Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and don't worry about anything, whatever is going to happen, 
I'm going to go with you wherever it is that you go. That's what, he, that's what he says. It's the will version of what he says. So he says these things to them. And so as they're going, he says, as you go, make disciples. And the as you go part, many of us know that unless we're kind of forced to go someplace, some of us don't really go anywhere. And that was kind of the case of the early church. And so what happened was, is as they began to preach and to teach in their local areas, whether that was in Jerusalem or uh, Bethlehem or Jericho, any of these little places that they were preaching and teaching, all these Christians were, in this case, Thessalonica, they would preach and teach. They would, they would uh, end up enduring some pretty fierce persecutions. And so in order to save themselves and their lives, Christians were scared and they would then flee to surrounding areas. And so the gospel, as you go, this whole idea that Jesus says, as you're, it's this idea of since you're going there anyway, go ahead and preach the gospel. And so as these Christians were going about trying to run for their lives and landing in these different places, they were then to preach the gospel. They were an early church with a lot of issues and, um, and, and facing fierce persecution. And so that is kind of the context of what this book was written in. When I was in college um, a few years ago, it's been a lot of years ago, do you ever just wake up feeling old? Oh my goodness, like we were watching a football game last night and all those football players look like they're 14 and you're just kind of like, when did we get so old? And they're professional. Have you ever been there? Like you're going, oh my goodness. That's where, so college was a long time ago apparently uh, in my life. I remember sitting in a Western Civ class and we had to read all these different stories um, and, 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 and then write a bunch of papers. I was never really good at writing papers um, or really reading uh, that well, but I could definitely make up a bunch of stuff that I think sounded good, and it passed me uh, through college at least, and especially Western Civ. I didn't really care for Western Civ a ton because we had to read all this stuff, Iliad and the Odyssey, and the things I just don't really care about. One of the stories that we did have to read, had to write a paper on, was uh, Don Quixote. And you remember Don Quixote, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's one of, probably considered the first novel that was really kind of ever written, if it, uh, if it was written, written about this guy named um, Alonzo Quijano was his name. And he was a rich, middle-aged man. And he'd been reading all these tell, tales about chivalry and knights and all of these just, um, just valiant uh, stories of, of men and armor and all these things. And he, he kind of goes crazy one day and believes that he himself uh, is a knight named Don Quixote. And so what does he do? He gets himself like anybody would that's there. Like anybody would do this. We would get ourselves a sidekick because that's what you do, isn't it? Like you get yourself a sidekick. Somebody come alongside you and do all these things. He gets a sidekick, a little squire named Sancho, and they begin having these adventures. And he believes that these adventures that he's having are real, but everybody else is, is, that, that's around that's hearing these adventures and, and they're just laughing at him. One of the most famous stories um, in this book is of Don Quixote's fight with windmills. And if you remember that, he's, he basically gets on a horse and he starts to fight a windmill. He sees some wind, windmills and he thinks that they are giants. And when he rides to fight them, he's knocked off of his horse like a windmill would do to one. And Sancho tells him that they're only windmills, but Don Quixote does not believe him. He is sure that a magician has changed the windmills into giants for the sole purpose of hurting him. That's it. Now, if you've ever read the end of the story, it's a sad story, a bunch of little stories. But in, in the end of the book, um, Don Quixote returns home, realizes he was insane, and then he dies. It's a sad story. 
I spent this, um, this last week, um, family and I went out to Oklahoma where I'm from, and we went to Fort Worth where my wife's uh, sister lives. And as we're driving down I-35 uh, from Oklahoma City to, to Dallas, uh, there are wind farms everywhere. And you've seen them, especially if you've ever traveled out in the flat part of the world. There's wind farms everywhere. And you've got these huge just windmills that are just turning. And I sit there and I'm thinking about Don Quixote as he's sitting there like how, like if, and granted the one that they're talking about weren't as big as those, but how would you ever think in your mind that you're going to win a battle against that? But he, nevertheless, he did. Don Quixote here was having an identity crisis, thinking that he was one thing when he really wasn't that at all. It's very similar to churches that we have, uh, that we see today, the evangelical church that, that is all around us, having an identity crisis, not knowing who they are. It's almost like we're baby, like a baby church of 50 AD in the church in Thessalonica. Not exactly knowing what we believe, why we believe it. But there are plenty of things that we could today make that, that, that could make a successful church. We could, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of metrics that we talk about when a, a church is successful. I remember growing up, went to Oklahoma Baptist University for my undergrad, and I remember uh, in the student ministry program was where uh, I was a youth ministry major, and, and there were all the guys that were talking, um, and we'd always get together and we'd talk about what we'd like to do after we graduate and where we want to go, and nobody necessarily wants to go to small churches. Everybody wants to go to the big church because it's a big name, it's a big clout, there's all these, they do big things. And I remember there's a particular church in North Texas that everybody wanted to go to. Go to. That was where you wanted to end up. If you could get to that point, you know, you'd made it. That was what success was for us youth ministry guys. Nobody wanted to go out in the middle of nowhere and serve at a church with only 35 people because that wasn't a success. According to a bunch of 22-year-olds who know everything in college. When we think about, we think about um, success in churches, we think about building size, we think about the number of people that come, we think about how much they give. There's all kinds of things that, that we do that make church, or that we basically say that makes a church a success. But none of those are true markers of success. And Paul points out here in 2 Thessalonians what true markers of success is for a church. So what should our identity be? What, would, what should Eastwood's identity be? Regardless of what this particular church's identity should be, the body of Christ, the church as a whole, we should strive for a godly identity. That's what we should strive for, a godly identity. But what is that? Well, Paul tells us what that looks like. So if you have your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you would, stand with me in honor of God's word as we read 1 through 4. Paul writes, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of God, excuse me, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that it would help us, encourage us, and challenge us uh, to walk and to live 
like Jesus desires us to live, that we'd be a church that exists the way that you intend us to exist. And so God, help us. Help us understand your word. Help us be challenged by it. And God, may we, um, everything that's said and done within these walls and may everything that we do outside of these walls bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Many people today want to believe that simply saying, sure, I'm a Christian, is enough to identify them. When I was in uh, probably about fifth grade, we, uh, we joined this church um, called Highland Park Baptist Church in my hometown of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And the pastor there was uh, Mike McBride, uh, just a great dude. He's in his 80s now, lives in Tampa, still preaching, um, just a, a great man, was grateful to be able to sit underneath him as a kid, uh, as a preacher. But Mike, uh, Mike McBride, um, Dr. McBride, one of the things that he wanted to do every single Sunday, because we were a relatively small church, only a few hundred, or not even a few hundred, we were probably 150, 200 people. Uh, in this church, he didn't. He wanted everybody to know who everybody was. So he had this idea that he, what he would do is every week he would bring a family up, a different family up every week of the um, of the year, and he would introduce them to the congregation. So you get to you get to kind of know us. And so he would bring us a family up. Well, our Sunday came, and we get the word that we're going to be up there. Um, my mom was a single mom at the time, and um, she was doing her best to just make life happen, and many of us can relate. Uh, when you got kids, it, you're just doing your best. Like, you just need a shirt to walk into church one day. It says, doing my best. You know, leave me alone. That's kind of how life is with her. Well, one day, she told us, this, this, this day we get up, we all get dressed, and we're going to go to church. Now, you would think, you would think as a fifth grader, maybe not as a fifth grader, you, we've all had, many of us had fifth graders, and you're thinking, oh, there's not a lot there. But you would think that I would wake up in that morning knowing I'm going to stand up on the platform in front of 150, 200 people, that I would think about what I was going to wear. But I did not. I did not. Mom tells us to get dressed. We walk out the door. She's busy. She's not even looking at what we're doing. She's making sure we have two shoes on and we're out the door. We're getting up on the stage. We get on the platform and he introduces. This is, I want to introduce you to the Smith family. This is Pam and this is her, uh, her son Casey and this is her other son Will. And uh, we want to just get you, let you know a little bit about them. Begins to tell a little bit about us and then he looks at me and then he does a double take on my shirt. So that day, Back in the 90s, if you're uh, familiar with that era, back in the 90s, um, Christian bookstores sold a lot of cool t-shirts. And all these t-shirts had fun little sayings on them, or they were always like taking a spoof off of something else, you know, and it was always like this, you know, you, my friend Cody and I have had many conversations about just the funny things that Christian bookstores had, had done, and one of the things they would do is they would always take, just make funny t-shirts out of common everyday phrases or advertisements. Well, I decided I was going to wear a shirt that was very, very similar uh, to a Budweiser logo. Yeah, I was real smart. So it was, a, it was a Budweiser shirt, and you remember back, back in then, the, uh, every commercial, you know, it was, um, this Bud's for you was the name of, was kind of their slogan, right, if you will. And so on this shirt, it had the Budweiser logo, but it had, it had everything look just like the logo, but it said on there, it said, his blood's for you, because that's what we did back in the day as Christian t-shirt company. So his blood's for you. And so as my pastor is introducing the family, he does, he does a double take, and he looks, and then... He begins to draw the attention of all the people in that room to my particular shirt, which didn't bother me because I liked the attention. I was cool. I was like, hey, what's going on? It was great for me. But my mom, my poor mom, it was just, she red-faced. She told me, but you don't have to tell me about it. She already told me, you know, a long time ago after we got out of church what was wrong with that whole picture. But he sat there and he began to sit there and tell about 
my shirt. Oftentimes, many of us think, and, and a lot of churches think, and, and maybe students and kids, and especially a fifth grader, that, that a particular shirt or what it is that we wear or because we have a, a WWJD bracelet on it, that is what our identity is. That's saying who we are. That this shirt, that because it's a Christian t-shirt, that makes me a Christian. Because it's a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do, makes me a Christian. But in all reality, it has nothing to do with what we wear or what we say. Some of you go, well, listen, I pray with my eyes closed. That makes me a Christian. Well, no, it doesn't. Just because you pray with your eyes closed doesn't make you Christian. It's a funny joke in youth group. Hey, listen, or around our dinner, t- dinner table as we're praying with our kids and we say, hey, listen, you know, if Christians pray with their eyes closed. That doesn't matter. It's not about what you wear, what you look like, what it is that, um, um, that those types of things that identify you with a particular thing at all. Our identity as a church is determined by certain obvious attributes, certain things that we do. God's people are not identified by what we say or what it is that we look like or, how, or what we wear. Instead, the church is identified by three things, as we find in this particular passage of Scripture. Now, the first thing is, is we are identified by our continually growing faith. Take a look at verse 3. Paul says this, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. That word ought there, it was almost like he's an obligation. He says, we, we, we feel obligated to give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing abundantly. It is growing abundantly. This idea of growing abundantly is growing wonderfully or increasingly. It's just something that is, that is growing. This was a young church that was growing faithfully. And their faith was growing amid the difficulties that they were enduring. Fierce persecution. But they were still growing. Many scholars believe that the Thessalonian church sent a letter to Paul prior, in between 1 and 2, First um, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, uh, conveying some doubts that they may have had in regard to their faith. You guys remember as baby Christians, as, as young Christians, just how it is like you, you would begin to kind of doubt what it is that you believed a little bit, and like questioning, why do I believe this? Or, or maybe if you grew up in a Christian home and you begin to make your faith your own, you begin to kind of question what it is that you believe and, and, and why. And these are the questions that Paul is trying to answer. William Barclay was a, uh, uh, was a professor at uh, Glasgow University um, uh, back in the day, and, and he, said, uh, he said this in regards to the church in Thessalonica. He said this particular answer, this letter, his answer in this letter, was to pick out their virtues and their achievements in such a way that these despondent, frightened Christians would square their shoulders, fling back their heads, and say, well, if Paul thinks that of us, we'll make a fight of it. I remember watching a video uh, on Facebook as I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed, um, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a man who was, who was teaching um, Taekwondo, and there was this boy who was trying to learn it, and he couldn't break the board. Couldn't break the board. Maybe you've seen the video. Couldn't break the board, and he was just, his head was, his head was down, and he was crying, and, and couldn't figure it out. But, the, but the, 
the, the, the sensei would look at him and he would encourage him. And he would sit there and he would tell him, listen, you can do this. And he would, he would lift him up and tell him all the good things that he was doing. And by the end of the time, the boy was, rather than being dejected in tears, he was, his shoulders were back and his head was up and he was staring his sensei in the eye. And at the end of that, he was able to go forward and break the board. Why is that? We see it within coaching all the time, right? When somebody is dejected, when a player is dejected and we just encourage them, their shoulders go up and their head is forward and say, listen, if he thinks I can do it, I can do it. And that's what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica. Yes, it stinks right now. It's hard. It's difficult. Life is tough, but you know what? You can do it. You can do it. If Paul thinks that of us, well, then we're just going to make a fight of it. The first trait that the Apostle Paul identifies is their faith, their adherence to the gospel and their trust in God. But if you do notice that he's not only simply telling them he thanks God for their claim to faith, it's not the claim to faith that he's thanking God for, it's their continued growth in their faith. It's not lip service. This is simply them growing in their faith, and Paul is recognizing that. And as God's people, we should be identified not simply by what we claim to have done at one point in the past, but our continual maturing faith. Well, how does one grow in their faith? How do we grow in our faith? Well, I'll tell you this, it's a long journey. Faith is a long journey. I can look back at 16 years old when I came to faith in Christ, and I can look to where I am now, and I praise God I'm not a 16-year-old baby faith as I am now. But I honestly can barely tell you how I got there. It's been a slow progression with a lot, it's like the stock market going up and down. That's my life. Crashes, growth, crashes, growth, and it just slowly over time, my faith has grown. But how does one grow in their faith? Well, one of the easiest ways and the first way that we can do it is through worship. Hebrews 10, 23 and 25 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we grow in our faith through worship. We also go on through our faith through Bible study. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's being a part of the sacred writings. It's spending time with them, reading them. It's how we grow in our faith. It's how we get to know God and who he is and what he has for us. Another thing we can do to grow in our faith is through prayer. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, 5 through 7, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we grow in our faith through worship, through Bible study, through prayer. We do it through service. All kinds of ways in which we grow in our faith. Our identity is not found in these man-made measures. We make all kinds of measures when it comes to our identity. Or even, you know, we talked earlier about what success is. Big churches, lots of people, lots of money. But at Eastwood, 
and that Christians in general, we are in the business of being disciples who make disciples. That's what he's called us to do, to be disciples who make disciples. That is the Great Commission. So we should be identified by our continually growing faith. We also should be identified by, number two, our continually increasing love. Look what he says there at the, um, at the end of um, verse 3. I'll read the whole thing. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So our continual love for one another. So how do we know our faith is growing? It's because we love one another. People see it. This is the same word love that we talked about in our James, um, and in the James series right before. It's that, it's that agape love that we hear over and over and over again. It's that, it's that love that we put before, um, we put other people's needs before our own. It's that sacrificial love that we say, listen, I don't care whatever it is that I want, my desires, my needs. I'm going to put these needs and these desires of others before my own. That is the sacrifice, that's the sacrificial love. And that's the love that he is saying is happening within the church in Thessalonica. John 13, Jesus says this. He says, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. He also said in the next verse, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how is it that we are identified with Christ? How are people going to know that we are who we say we are? It's, well, it's how we love one another. It's how we put the needs of other people before us. And this love that the church in Thessalonica had was increasing. It was growing. I've uh, been uh, ministry a little over 20 years at this point. And my first, uh, second church I served in was in uh, Oxford, Alabama. And I've had, uh, we kind of went through a little, uh, you're familiar with the worship wars. There's always about the stylist, style of music uh, in churches. And um, in this particular church that I was in, it's a great church, love the church, and my mentor in ministry was the pastor at this church, and we had this, um, this season where we were, it was a small season, as I'll tell you here in a second, but it was a small season of, of battling this worship war, of we want, we had some people who really wanted tradition and hymns, which are wonderful and fantastic, and then we wanted some new, the newer music of, uh, you know, uh, different instruments leading, and, and which is fantastic as well. So, like, we had this battle, and we had all these people. And I remember sitting there um, over a series of a few months. These battles were pretty intense. I was not the worship guy there. I was just a youth guy, but I did worship occasionally as, as, the, youth, as the music guy was out. And so um, having these battles of really what it is we're trying to do, and it was just, it was, it was a struggle. And because you, you love all these people who have all of these um, Uh, who are incredibly passionate about the style of music that they really enjoy and prefer. And I remember my pastor getting up there one day, and during the middle of the sermon, he he referenced the worship board, and he sat there and he said, listen, he never remembers saying this either, which I thought was hilarious, Uh, but he sits there and he goes, "Um, it doesn't matter to me what side of music, or uh, whether you want traditional or whether you want uh, uh, contemporary, but if we have five seventh grade boys who can can put together an armpit band and sing praises to Jesus, we're going to have a band of armpit boys up here singing praises to Jesus. That's just what we're going to do. And I'm sitting there going because I'm a little uh, ADD, I kind of wandered off on that and going, what would that be like? And can, as the youth pastor, I was like, I wonder if we could make that happen. That'd be great, you know? And so he sits there, and that, honestly, that was the end of the conversation. 
Because everybody understood at that point, like, listen, this is about worship and whatever instrumentation that's going to be, we're going to worship. And it was at that moment in that particular church that I realized, because listen, I was, I mean, full disclosure, I was of the contemporary mind. It was convicting to me at that point. I'm like, listen, I need to put my desires away and love one another. Putting the desires of other people before my own. And when we do that, all people, as Jesus said in John 13, all people will know that you are my disciples. That if you love one another. And so Paul here is saying, and he's encouraging them, and he's, he's giving thanks to God for them. Why? Because the love for every one of you, for one another, is increasing. Loving one another has nothing to do with what it is that we like, what we prefer, but it means making a decision and taking action that are for the glory of God and for the good and the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's going to be one day when, you walk, when I walk into a church and I'm 97 years old and I walk into a church very similar to Eastwood where dubstep is going to be the preferred worship style. All bass and a bunch of people dancing around going crazy. Like, that's going to be it. And you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to say, listen, I've got to put my desires and my, my own wants and desires down because this is worship. As we become the church that God has called us to be, we must continue to increase in our concern for our brothers and sisters in need. We have to be less concerned with what I like or what I prefer or what makes me comfortable. So we grow in our faith, we increase in our love, and the third thing that we are identified by is our continually enduring stance. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves, talking about uh, uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I think it's incredible that Paul here, because of what we've just talked about, because they're growing in their faith, they're growing in their love, that he is boasting about the church in Thessalonica to the churches of God. Everywhere he goes, he says that he's walking into these churches and he's telling them about the church in Thessalonica. About how they're growing in their faith, how they're loving one another. In spite of all that they're having to deal with and go through, they are loving one another. And he's telling this, and he's, he's excited about it, and he's in, just coming into these places and boasting about what God is doing in the church. Now, we do this oftentimes, too. We, we will do this. We have no problem doing this, talking about what God is doing uh, overseas in the mission field. We have no problem at all talking about what God's doing in, in the underground church in China what he's doing uh, in churches in South America. We'll come in and we'll talk about that all day long and we'll boast about those things, but how often do we boast about churches, things that God's doing in churches in our own city? Let me tell you what living hope, let me tell you what God is doing in living hope. Let me tell you what God is doing at Woodburn. It's incredible. Let me tell you what God is doing at Hillview or at Greenwood, or Scottsville Baptist. 
We don't have those conversations. We don't talk about those types of things. But here Paul is saying that he is boasting about the church in Thessalonica at every single church. But why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. They're, they're, they're difficult times. It's weary. They're tired. And he's boasting about how they're standing firm in a difficult season. On May, um, May, in March, March 5th, if you're, uh, if you're somebody who likes to put things on their calendar, March 5th, Sunday night, March 5th, uh, Eastwood, um, both campuses will come together at the Nicely Center, and we're going to, uh, we're going to celebrate what God has done um, at Eastwood uh, over the past 70 years. Eastwood turned 70 in November this year, 70. We're going to call it, it's called Legacy Night. We're going to get together as both campuses. We're going to, we're going to come together. We're going, to, we're going to celebrate what God has done over the past 70 years. But then we're going to focus on what God is going to do over the next 30 years until we celebrate 100 years. What is the identity of Eastwood? What do we want Eastwood, as we look back over 100 years, to say? What is it we're striving for? What is our desire? Because the next 30 years are going to be difficult. It's not going to get easy. It's going to be very, very hard to, to, to walk the walk and to talk the talk in the world in which we live in, to live on biblical principles in the world in which we live in. What is our identity going to be? And on March 5th, we will talk about that. We'll, we'll come together as a church, and we will, we will sit there, and we'll lay out the plan. And I'll give you a little hint. It's an easy one. The Great Commission. For the glory of God, Eastwood is going to be a church of disciples who make disciples. For the glory of God, we are disciples who make disciples. So we are going to get together and we are going to, to plan and to look forward and to be excited about the next 30 years. And I hope one day, it'd be awesome, one day, if there was somebody who could boast about what God is doing at Eastwood to churches around. When we have missionaries, we talk about our missionaries and our uh, for the International Mission Board now. Uh, we, had, we took an offering for uh, Lottie Moon, which is our uh, international missions. Our goal was $100,000. Right now, Eastwood has raised just over $92,000 to give to international missions. This allows our international missionaries um, all over the world to, to be able to be focused, to, to be focused on the, the mission at hand, which is to, to make disciples and to share the gospel with people. They don't have to come home and they don't have to, to, to go through the process of trying to raise money. And, you're, and you're giving, um, your giving allows our missionaries to stay on the field and do the work that God has called them to do. And how cool would it be for our missionaries, when they come back home to the United States and they go and they visit their churches, how cool would it be for them to be able to go back to their, to their mission field and say, let me tell you what God is doing in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And here's my fear, and I could be wrong. I don't know if that happens a ton. I don't know if it does. I don't know if we have our missionaries. Let me tell you what God's doing in America. 
how cool would it be? How cool would it be for God to, be, to use Eastwood in such a fashion that when people talk about us, they are boasting about what God has done at Eastwood. That their people are growing in their faith. That their love for one another is increasing and that they are steadfast in the difficult times that are ahead of us because it's not going to get easier. A lot of churches are giving way to uh, basically everything. They're, the gospel has become polluted with the world around them. They're more concerned about people in seats than they are about the hearts of the people in those seats. They're more concerned about numbers they're more, concern, they're more concerned about the, the money in the pocket. There's all these things that the churches are concerned with. But how cool would it be if it was said of Eastwood in 30 years that they are a church who is growing in their faith, their love for one another is increasing, and they are steadfast in what it is that they believe. As we prepare in the next few months to really understand what the Lord has for Eastwood in the coming decades and beyond, may we never forget that we don't have to wonder what God wants for us. His desire for Eastwood and his desire for you individually is to grow in our faith continually, to love one another, and to remain steadfast in our hope in the gospel. No matter the opposition, Whatever we can do to attain this inspiring identity that is laid forth here in 2 Thessalonians, it's obvious that that's God's desire for his church. May we strive to be all that God desires us to be. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I understand this means nothing to you. This is for the church, for Christians, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to, to continue to strive to dig our heels in and be steadfast in what it is that we believe and why we believe it. To not bow to social pressures. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I know this means nothing. But you need to know before you leave here today that God loves you and his desire is to have a relationship with you. If you are far from God and you don't have a relationship with him, you need to know that he sent his son Jesus to earth to go to the cross and die for your sins. That's what makes you, apart, makes you far from God is your sin separates you from him. And Jesus died for your sins and he died for my sins. And all that he's asked in return is that we repent of our sins and we trust Jesus, trust that what Jesus did on that cross, that him taking our sin upon his shoulders and dying on the cross, trusting that that, in that, that death, and trusting that Jesus is who he is, Son of God, you trust in that and you come to faith in Christ. You too. Can know him. Have a relationship with him. And he offers you this gift of eternal life. So if you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. We never want to leave this building without giving you the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. If you need somebody to talk to, I'll be right down front here in a second as we, we sing one final song and we close in worship. I'll be right here at the front. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Dave uh, will be down here. Jeremy will be down here as well. We'll have these conversations with you. We'd love for you to, to, to leave this place knowing 
that you are in the safe hands of Jesus. Church, for the rest of us in this room, God desires that we grow in our faith. How do we grow in our faith? Well, we spend time in worship, in Bible study, prayer, service, and the like. We grow and we increase in our love for one another. And we're steadfast in what it is we believe in. So if you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you want to kind of hit your wagon with Eastwood and what Eastwood's doing in the plan and, and our desire to, to reach this community and Bowling Green and the nations for the world, or for, for the gospel. Maybe you want to do, maybe today's the day that you want to come and, and join and be a part of our fellowship. We can, now's that time to respond. Regardless of where we're at in this room, now's the time to respond.